Did you and Izzy officially meet through a classified ad in the recycler? Yeah, yeah. He was very like, let me tell you about what we're looking for. Do you have long hair? Do you have some black pants? How long have you been playing? Welcome back to the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. As with all of our guests in season one, Steve Darrow was there. He was there at the beginning and met Izzy Stradlin and Axl Rose through an ad in The Recycler in the early 1980s and eventually became one of the founding members of the new Hollywood Rose, a version of Hollywood Rose and a precursor to LA Guns. Like so many musicians at the time, Steve cycled in and out of bands in what Slash called an incestuous revolving door of players and bands. Steve, welcome to the show. Hello, nice to be here. Good to have you. And Mark, good to have you back as well, as always. Of course. Love to be here. Awesome. So, Steve, let's talk about when you entered into this GNR origin story and maybe talk about meeting Izzy. Basically, Izzy was the first person I met out of those guys. We'd been in the same club. I'd seen this guy, and he stood out just the way he looked. Fast forward a couple years from now, 84, 85, 86, there was like a thousand Izzy's in, in L.A. But at that point, there was only him. Did you and Izzy officially meet through a classified ad that Izzy had placed in the recycler? Yeah, yeah. Before uh, Craigslist and the internet, there was, you know, silly little local newspapers where you could place a free ad. The recycler just happened to be the L.A. version. It sold everything. It's, I was always looking for instruments and whatnot, so looking the musicians wanted. And it turns out, you know, if you look at other people's backstories, like Motley Crue, you know, met Nick Mars through the recycler. Like, But anyways, it was a paper, and it came out every Thursday, and it was really cheap. This one really popped out, and it was, I could tell the way it was worded, it was like, you know, he used all of all of the adjectives, you know, it was all super glam and hair and makeup and Vogue magazine, Hanoi Rocks and Motley Crue, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, no one was really saying that, so I had, I had to call these guys. I called the number in the recycler and like I said it was uh, not directly like hello hi this is Jeff it was like I left a message and then I got it waited a few days didn't hear anything I was still living with my mom in Pasadena at that point so I think when by the time whoever returned my call from the week or so before that she probably answered and wrote it down on a piece of paper for me and said oh call this number so there's a bit of an old-fashioned phone tag back then so once I finally got on the phone with this person who said their name was Jeff, and I still didn't know that it was this that black-haired guy with the leather jacket, he was very like, okay, no, let me tell you about what we're looking for. Do you have long hair? Do you have some black pants? How long have you been playing? Do you like this band? Do you like that band? You know, Do you like Aerosmith? Do you like Hanoi Rocks? Do you like New York Dolls? It took, like I said, it took a good number of phone calls before he actually said, you know, come on over to our apartment and, you know, we'll hang out. You guys finally connected and you and Izzy obviously found common ground with style and sound. You talked about, you know, the New York Dolls, you talked about Aerosmith. What were, what were some 
other specific examples of the bands and the sounds that you both gravitated to that, you know, began to you know, deepen your friendship and collaboration at that time? Basically, Motley Crue and, and Wasp and Rat and bands like that were, were the big thing at the time. But this was like the sort of second generation of those type of strip bands that were just starting to get on MTV and whatnot. So there was like that level of like, I kind of want to do something like that, but not quite the same because everyone wants to do that now. But I want to take elements of, say, what Crew and Wasp is doing, and namely the Dolls, uh, Alice Cooper, old Alice Cooper, uh, even some punk. And what about Hanoi Rocks? Well, like Hanoi Rocks was definitely like the, the password or the code word that, that got sort of got you into to that inner circle because at that point they were really really new you only really knew about them is is if you read the import rock magazines from europe what was it about hanoi rocks that that resonated with everyone at, at that point for for izzy especially um they were just sort of like the ultimate they seemed like the ultimate next thing you know the next big thing that hadn't been exploited yet and there were little bits of everything that we had talked about before there were uh, but a little more extreme and less heavy metal you know musically but more more makeup more dolls more trash trashy you know less van halen party tan california and more you know, cowboy boots and black hair and lots of bandanas and lots of makeup. <laughs> to watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs, that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe. So when you were first hooked up with, with Izzy, let's just try to establish a timeline here. You know, the early bands that he was in, you know, range from the Naughty Women to the Adams to the Babysitter to Voodoo Church. Can you tell us anything about those? Were you around at that time? Okay, so my history before this was I had been playing drums mainly. Bands that were more in that scene, to be honest. It wasn't the Metal Sunset Strip scene at all. I mean, it was the more punk, post-punk into Death rock was what we called it before they called it goth, which was the voodoo church and naughty women. And, and those were the, like, like I was saying when I'd seen Izzy around, the people that looked like that, that sort of hybrid of, you know, Johnny Thunders meets Nikki Six meets Susie Sue or something like that. You know, Voodoo Church was a band that I'd seen and even played gigs with. And I didn't know that Izzy was hooked up with these people at that time because the funny thing is, he never mentioned that. You started out playing drums. Yeah. And you started jamming with these guys playing drums. And it sounds like there wasn't a match with you playing drums with them or they were looking for another style of drummer. Yeah, exactly. So you guys never really kind of got together in a band. And then you joined Carrie Doll, yeah. um, played with Carrie Doll for a while. But then you switched to the bass and you got great at bass. And I think you were sharing a bill uh, at a venue with 
with Rose or Hollywood Rose at the time. Yeah, opening for Carrie Dahl. And uh, they, they saw you playing and they recruited you into Hollywood Rose. So can you tell us about that sequence of events? There was one particular show uh, with Carrie and it was crazy, you know, crazy shock rock show, high energy. It's hanging around afterwards and uh, just before I had to carry my gear down the stairs and um, like I said, Izzy and Bill were there for most of the night and it was towards the end of the night and I bumped into him. I was like, oh, what's going on with you guys? You know, what's going on with the band? You you guys find, you know, your your ultimate setup yet? And he goes, yeah, well, like, did you find a bass player ever? Because I know that was like an issue last time I talked to him. He goes, no, you're our new bass player. It's like as simple as that. I go, oh, I am. <laughs> and I was kind of like cocky, like, well, okay. What do you have in mind? <laughs> and literally, uh, the opening of the revolving doors of all this incestuous band started happening. Yeah. But you never actually played with Izzy and Axel because at that time, Hollywood Rose broke up and the new Hollywood Rose began. And the new Hollywood Rose had you, Axel, Slash, and Steven Adler. So what happened during that transition? Again, this was one of those many times that, you know, there was these gray areas of bands when it wasn't just a straight, okay, this is, this is Rose, this is Hollywood Rose, this is different people. There was a time when it was going to be basically the same as, you know, Hollywood Rose. So what you're saying is that the Hollywood Rose at that time should have been Axel, Izzy, you, and Chris Weber? Basically. And the drummers were always sort of, well, we'll use this guy for a while, but we got another guy in mind. You know, it was always this sort of somewhat blurry. By the time that gig came around, the the whole lineup was... Someone had quit. Someone had been fired. So, so when that fell apart, um, how did Steven and Slash come into the picture? And what was that like for you now jamming with, you know, this new lead guitarist that wasn't Izzy um, and Steven Adler? It was, it was great. It was different at first. And there was, Mark, I don't know if you remember, but there was a time at Fortress of Programmer when we did rehearse and it was Izzy and it was Slash and it was me. Well, yeah, what, what I remember is I remember seeing Rose or Hollywood Rose at Kazari's yeah. and, and Chris Weber and Andre Trotz were in the band and Slash met Axel that night and Izzy and they, they had a little meeting and it seemed like within a week they were in the, uh, Slash and Steven were in the band and you were in the band but Andre Trotz was out and Izzy was there for like five seconds. Yeah, maybe. And there was a, a that that five seconds. There was a couple of jams where it was all of us. Uh, I remember being in the studio, and I remember you were there, and, and and I just remember that I can't. I vaguely remember whether or not Izzy was there, or or maybe he was there one day and not the next. I, I can't remember exactly. I'm pretty sure it was something like that because there was a time when. Because Izzy was fine uh, with the Slash idea. He wasn't 100%, I think, sold on it, but he was like, this guy's cool. I think that night, uh, it's obviously kind of something happened between those guys. So at that point, then, you know, you were saying, just tell me where to, where to show up and I'll be there. Was that the new Hollywood Rose? 
it wasn't anything yet, but it's looking back on it, it's what you would call the new Hollywood Rose. And it, again, Izzy was there, and Slash was there, and me. And so it was, and so it was basically the appetite lineup with me instead of Duff for that one day at least. Um, we jammed, and then again, like Mark said, I think we had another jam a few days later. And Izzy seemed to have just not showed up. I don't want to skip over this point um, that you just mentioned, which was it was the appetite lineup with you instead of Duff. Let me say something. It was the appetite lineup with you instead of Duff. The only difference is Steven was playing double bass drums. So it was a completely different dynamic. It was it was like a speed metal band, but not really speed metal. It was like a speed something band. It was just, it was double bass drums and it was loud and it was, you know, in your face. So the Guns N' Roses that Steve was in, that Steve Darrow was in, was not the Appetite that played a year, the Appetite lineup that played a year later. Everything slowed down. A year later, everything was at like half time. That the, the Hollywood Rose with the Appetite lineup, except for, except for Duff, it didn't sound anything like the Guns N' Roses at their first gig at the Troubadour, because, like I said, that everything had slowed down because of the double. They, they stole one of Steven's bass drums, so it was a, it was a different dynamic. Same guys, but a different da- dynamic. But Mark's right. I mean, musically, basically, even with Slash and Steve, it was it was basically starting where you know the Izzy tunes, which were all pretty fast and, and you know I mean it was it was it was like if you took Motorhead and had Nazareth vocals or Steven Tyler vocals on top of that you know like Speed Glam which kind of probably hard for a lot of Guns N' Roses people to, to wrap their head around that it was like that I just want to riff on what you're saying really quickly because I think there's this common belief that somehow these these five guys met and their music was immediately great together and they dominated the Sunset Strip and they got signed and went off. And what you're basically telling us is that there was just a lot of experimentation going on. There was a lot of versions of of these different bands. There was a lot of musical styles that they were trying on and taking off. It, It wasn't like there was some magic that just came together all of a sudden. There was a lot of iteration. To preview the full experience of the first 50 gigs video podcast that includes exclusive photos and videos from Mark's archive, check out the first 50 gigs YouTube channel. You'll find the link right here in our episode show notes. So Stephen, at this point, you were rehearsing with all the guys. Izzy leaves and joins London. And then you and the new Hollywood Rose play about five gigs together. Most of them Mark documented, starting with June 16th at Madame Wong's West. What do you remember about the four or five gigs that you played together with Axel, Steven, and Slash? What I remember about the first gig the most, uh, the Madame Wong's, was that, uh, oddly enough, it was, I think, Steve Adler's, I want to say his first live show, it was all amped up, like even more amped up than usual and, and a little bit nervous. And, uh, he didn't even know, like, the sound man at Madame Wong said to say, no, dude, you need, we need to put a microphone in your, in your bass drums, both of them, uh, 
you need to cut a hole so we, you know like you see everybody out there in pictures and they have holes cut in their bass drum you know and you got to do that he's like oh what why and he had to run around the block <laughs> to let off some steam again mark was probably there and it was not a whole lot of other people in the audience besides our girlfriends and mark so this is the june 16th show so what comes to mind probably the first thing people are going to notice is you know you can see slash's face through his hair which was the case back then um, no, no top hat yet. No Les Paul yet. His marshals he had traded in for um, Rissen, which were local amp company made in Orange County, which were uh, kind of new at the time, and a lot of people were switching over. Uh, Motley Crue included, Lita Ford. Uh, Axel, obviously, the next thing probably people notice is Axel's sort of Duran Duran type, type of suit which uh, I don't know what was the vibe that she was going for then. Uh, could have been anywhere from Hanoi Rocks to Duran Duran to uh, Mick Jagger, or David Bowie that he was going for. And the next one I see coming up is definitely a drum set that didn't get seen much in later years. Steve's Tama, double bass, lots of cymbals, two China cymbals, uh, large drums, he played all of them all the time. The first jam that me and Izzy and Axel had with no bass player, me playing drums. That's exactly, pretty much exactly the same thing that Izzy was trying to reiterate by saying, "Well, you're not kind of, you're not the right stylistic drummer for this." Uh, and Steve, when he came in, was blazing. I mean, he was he did fine at being that kind of drummer. Cream Magazine T-shirt. That was cool. Axel had, and that was an original one. There was before there was fucking reissues of any of this stuff made. This was like almost old fashioned at the time. Like early 80s, this would have been kind of like, oh, Cream Magazine, doesn't that was so five years ago or something, but very cool boy howdy t shirt. And what was Cream Magazine? Cream Magazine was like the coolest American rock magazine of all time. Um, it wasn't Rolling Stone, and it wasn't Circus, and it wasn't any of these later magazines that you probably, people might remember from the 80s. Let's talk about what Slash was, was playing on and what kind of sound was coming out. Well, he had gotten, uh, always, this was like the newest, coolest custom PC Ridge Warlock at the time. Not cheap at all. Yeah, I, I believe he got that at Hollywood Music, which where Genghis Cohn is now, on you know just north of Melrose and Fairfax. Uh, and he worked there, so he he must have you know, you know, taken a little bit out of his paycheck or put down layaway or whatever. I, I do remember it being like at maybe twenty five hundred bucks or something like that. It was it was a lot of money. Like someone in our in our financial situation should not have been able to own one of those guitars. And he did. And he had BC Riches previous to that, too, as you look in the old pictures, Rug Crew and Ty Sloan and whatnot. He was playing like another nice old BC Rich, which was more of what Joe Perry played in the live bootleg days. I remember even in the, another thing about the transition between the, the different roses and the Hollywood rose and whatnot. I mean, I remember even once Axel sort of took charge of this lineup. You know, it wasn't Izzy calling the shots and coming up with the direction so much. It was, it was Axel's like, 
idea. He's like, I want to kind of, you know, I want to do the same stuff we were always doing, but a little bit more street. You said something very interesting. You said that, you know, Axel was beginning to call the shots here because Izzy wasn't around. Yeah, he's he always was Axel, even if he wasn't, even if he was just doing what someone else came up with, he was always Axel, and he always had his, his ideas and his persona and stuff like that. It's just, I think it became more and more upfront. And same with Slash. You know, once Izzy was temporarily out, Slash had a lot more to do with um, coming up with a different sound. And Axel had more to do with like what you know, what to do, where to take the sound visually on stage. And it wasn't all that much different than the early days, but you could tell it was. I mean, just just looking at the pictures, you can tell. So, so the next gig was at the Troubadour on July 10th. Did you feel like there was a, a following that was growing for Hollywood Rose at that time? Not necessarily. You know, it was all just like I said. It was all basically we were going through the every band in LA, especially at times like back then when there was thousands and thousands of bands or hundreds at that point, you had to sort of work your way up no matter what, what, no matter how good you sounded or how good you looked or whatever, you had to pay your dues at these opening and weeknights and play into small crowds. And uh, once you got into the Troubadour and the Whiskey and Zari's, you had to get into the pay to play situation, which was basically Either you came up and if you were an unknown band, you either had to come up with seven, eight hundred dollars cash and give that to them in advance. Tell me about what, what this is. It looks like some kind of signed contract from Doug Weston's Troubadour. And it says that uh, Sunday through Thursday, there's a two drink minimum, four dollars enforced at the box office. And that uh, you need to include your, your client list. Um, but do not include any band or crew. And it tells you what order of appearance you're coming on and that any violation of the above rules may result in disqualification of payment and or further bookings. So what is this contract? These tickets that you had to sell in advance before the show basically, basically generated cash for the club in case no one showed up. If you were a band that had no followers, if five people showed up and paid five bucks to get in, you would still owe the club money. So basically, uh, you had to pay for everything. You had to pay if you wanted a dressing room, that was an extra 30 bucks. If you wanted the guy at the Troubadour to run your lights, that was an extra 20 bucks. If you wanted, you know, anything, it was like these add-ons back then. And same with the whiskey and Gazzari's and stuff after a certain point, unless you were a well-established band that had your own contracts. And then they knew it was going to be a full house. Then you had your own set of rules. But we were, again, we were working up the ladder. Like all the bands had to do, they had to work up, especially at the Troubadour. They had to play, you know, crappy nights, opening, then you'd play a crappy night, you'd play a higher up on the bill, like maybe the middle of the bill and then you'd be like another crappy night a month later headlining and then you'd drop down to a weekend but you'd drop down to like the opening band again and then you had to work up that ladder which was just this constant struggle for local bands Steve Darren was saying uh, there was the first time Steven Adler played a real gig well actually it was the first time Slash played a real gig too because before that they had never neither one of them had played at a real club 
They only played in, at, at parties or, you know, uh, at a rehearsal, a rehearsal party, but not an actual venue. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, it was fun for me to finally, you know, I had I had been shooting concerts for about, you know, two years before that. And whoever came through town, you know, anyone. And uh, so to me, it was like now I get to finally shoot them on a stage rather than at rehearsal or, you know, at a party. So it, it was more of a, it was like shooting a real band on stage. Mark did a really good job, not just being there. I mean, even anyone being there with a camera would have been fine for documentation, but he did a really good job of actually, you know, making these photos look awesome. Whatever was happening on stage, that's what I was grabbing. Yeah. So I, I was shooting the whole band. Yeah, and it was like as if you were shooting, you know, ACDC or UFO or one of the bigger shows right, right. paid a bunch of money and went to like a big place to, you know, it was like, it d didn't look like a little crappy snapshot from the back of an empty room. Well, it's funny that you say that at the, at the, at the Madame Wong's East June 28th gig, there was literally five people in the audience and it was their girlfriends. Yeah. And so, and maybe I believe Tracy Guns actually was at that gig too, but, um, Possibly, but it's still, it, it, it was, it was like, you know, trying to shoot, make it look like it really was a concert. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the, the band was playing like it was a full stadium. <laughs> that was the fun of it. That was, that was again, and you could tell like this shot right here that you have, I mean, this is a classic example. Like I said, if you didn't see a low ceiling on this little, you know, dingy club. I mean, this was like a punk rock club for all practical purposes. You know, I had played here with punk bands and stuff, not too far before this and sometimes there was a hundred people in that room sometimes there was four you know and uh it was a chinese restaurant literally by the day and they turned it into a rock club at night to make some extra money but um you know he did a good job and everyone was assuming the position and you know doing like what they should have been doing they didn't look like a scared young novice band you know that was kind of like what do we do oh you know i mean everyone was like going through the motions like they were they'd been doing it forever and it's funny that it was both of those guys first gigs too <laughs> to watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season join our growing community on patreon and subscribe I think for now, I'm more interested in, in spending time kind of wrapping up the Hollywood Rose story and understanding what led to, to, to its demise and the birth of L.A. Guns. Like I said, it wouldn't have been the first time that the band fell apart. It seemed to happen about every six weeks <laughs> to two months or something. You know, the band would fall apart and it would get back together. And uh, sometimes it was fatal. Even once they solidified their lineup, there was times when it seemed like they weren't going to make it to the next week, you know, as a band. I was never really fired and I didn't quit. You know, I figured it would be one of those things where, well, maybe they'll get back together again in a couple of months and I'll be playing with them and maybe they'll have somebody else. And it didn't happen that way. Because everyone was all over the place, you know? Like, no one was really like... Slash and, and Axel were still doing different things and trying to do different things. I think Slash was commiserating with other people like Duff and whatnot at that point. You know, so there was the beginning of all this second wave of cross-pollination so um, I think his idea was to get Slash and Axel 
and myself to play bass. I mean, we knew about Raz coming in, and as Tracy, we got closer with Tracy and whatnot, things were rolling along. Like each time I bumped into him, there was something new that they had planned. There was an EP, and there was uh, ads, and there was videos, and then we got a van, and we got new gear. So things were like really rapidly jumping up with them. Other things were happening too in these parallel times when I sort of disappeared and Izzy came back into the fold and then uh, Tracy came into the fold. I actually ended up playing in a band with Tracy um, in New York, which was a very weird thing because he actually broke, he actually quit his own band, LA Guns, to go play with me in New York with this uh, girl who was a penthouse pet who had a basically the same type of a Hanoi Rocks, you know, New York Dolls band with her fronting it. Is there a part of you that goes, you know, I was really the bass player in Guns N' Roses at one time. It was the Appetite lineup, except I was in it instead of Duff. And does that have any, any, any meaning for you or any sting? Or was it like you were just moving through the motions as a young musician and you were on your own trajectory and probably would not have ended up in Guns N' Roses anyways. Both. A little both. We all knew that they were going to be big and they deserved to be. Once that sort of post-Geffen, post-1986 era, then all of a sudden it was like looking back a few years, I was like, wow, that went quickly. <laughs> that escalated quickly and how long is this going to last? And that could have been me and um, I'm, still I'm still living shitty apartment and have no money just trying to get a band together out of recycling and that kind of thing even some of us were waiting for like you know oh it's going to be huge for like one record or one year and then it's going to bottom out like a lot of these bands did and it just kept climbing climbing so then it became in this whole other uh, stratosphere of level of you know, ACDC and the Stones and bands like that that they looked up to they became on that same level and then and that was an odd thing for me but again knowing those guys from before and just hanging out going to shows shooting shit throwing ice cubes at them on stage and uh, them doing the same thing when I was playing in bands they'd be in the audience you know kind of messing with you <laughs> like friends do it's just kind of the way Hollywood is so you can either let it get to you or you can just deal with it go wow this is crazy this is really happening it does bug me but it doesn't bug me to the point that I, I'm losing sleep over it there was those weird times when you know no matter who came to town Slash or Axel or Izzy would jump up on stage with them remember that like if Cheap Trick would play Slash would be up there on stage with Cheap Trick if Iggy Pop would play they'd be up there with Iggy Pop Alice Cooper you know uh, Aerosmith and it was just like when did that happen? <laughs> that was the parts that, that kind of got to me more than anything, because I was like, those are all people that I wanted to be up on stage with and jamming with, you know? And uh, then once Appetite came out, you know, they almost sur surpassed a lot of those bands that they were jumping up on stage with. And uh, so they became their own sort of band that people wanted to jump up with Guns N' Roses, you know? And uh, that was a whole other whole other thing to deal with but that's what was kind of like uh on my mind in those days more than anything well steven we appreciate your time and loved having you on and um 
loved that kind of you were there and have your genetic fingerprints on on this appetite lineup as well and we're absolutely a part of this this whole journey so so thanks for helping us to to get related to that and to understand that time with you great We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. To watch the video podcast, access bonus episodes and galleries, and buy show merchandise, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe.